in the New Testament, the book called The First Letter to Timothy. It's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul wrote this to Timothy, who was pastor, pastor of a church called Ephesus, church in Ephesus. And so he's telling young Timothy all the things he needs to know. And we've been looking at this for five weeks. This is part six in the series. And this is entitled Men and Women in the Church. And my text is 1 Timothy 2. I'll start reading there in a moment. My sources include Philip Graham Ryken's Reformed Expository Commentary from Timothy, Michael Bentley's Passing on the Truth uh, from 1 Timothy, uh, John R.W. Stott, the late John Stott, the message of 1 Timothy, John Calvin, who lived 500 years ago, still very applicable today, his letters to Timothy, and then Bob Deffenbaugh's message, The Conduct of Women in the Church. So listen to the Word of God. This is the Word of God from 1 Timothy 2, starting at verse 8. Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The grass withers. The flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for your presence as our teacher. Speak to us, O Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, our weather forecasters blew it. If you remember a week ago last Tuesday, when we were going to be covered with snow and ice, schools were canceled. I think Lamar was the smart one because they started late. But seriously, have you noticed what a great job the weatherman has? He gets to smile and gets to tell us the good news and the bad news about the weather. He or she gets to let us know what tomorrow is going to look like, even what next week's going to look like. And when they're wrong, no big deal, right? Well, that's what I thought. The truth is, you may not know this, but TV meteorologists frequently receive hate mail. They even receive obscene phone calls. Probably no surprise in the day in which we live, but people actually call up and cuss out weather forecasters. Because the weather isn't just as they predicted. As if they were responsible somehow for the weather. Well, guess what? Being a pastor is a little bit like that. I mean, after all, I didn't write the Bible. God didn't check with me or consult with me in the process, and I'm so glad he didn't. Honestly, what my role is, is to report to you what God says. And sometimes people get upset because they don't like the forecast. That's probably going to be the case today when I tell you what the Bible has to say about the conduct of men and women in the church, particularly women in the church. So, ladies, put your seatbelts on. A 
2002 gender survey conducted by Christianity Today International Research Department entitled Adam and Eve in the 21st Century, it shows that most Christianity Today subscribers are unsure of what the Bible means when it says what it says about the roles of men and women in the church. As many as 69% of the respondents say the husband is the spiritual leader of their homes. 12% say the wife is, 12 say none or doesn't apply, and 7 say both. Interestingly, 70% of those who say that the husband should be the spiritual leader of the home also say that men are attracted to self-sufficient women rather than dependent women. Of the 750 respondents, 88% agree that, quote, there's a lot of confusion about male and female roles in the Christian world today, end of quote. Only 19% say that the Bible is teaching on the matter are, quote, very clear and plainly understood, end of quote, while 39% say that the teachings are, quote, clear in principle with much room for personal choice and practice, end of quote. It's no wonder, then, that 78% of the respondents think that, quote, Christian leaders need to speak out on the proper roles for men and women, end of quote, while only 9% say they don't need such guidance. What that tells me is that a number of you would like some guidance on this issue, and that's what I'm going to try to give you to you today. I can also say that this passage of Scripture is quite controversial from a number of standpoints, and most of these conflicts arise from culture. For example, you can say all you want that gender is fluid, but I beg to differ on the basis of Scripture, God's holy word. Scripture insists that gender is a God-given fact. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So men and women have one huge thing in common. Both are created in the image of God, and therefore, as I said earlier, they're equals. At the same time, Scripture is also very clear that there are major differences between men and women. It really shouldn't come as a surprise that God has sometimes special instructions for men and special instructions for women especially when it comes to the church and to the ministry of the church. So let's look at three lessons this morning. The first is this. I hope you'll follow in your outline. Men and their prayers. Men and their prayers. If you look in the text again at verse 8, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. You ever noticed that I lift my hands when I pray? And have you ever wondered why I do that during the invocation, during the dedication prayer? It was the Jewish custom for the men to take the lead in the synagogue services. And whenever they prayed in synagogue worship, it was the custom for the men to lift their hands. In fact, all of the teaching and public praying in public worship was done by the men. So it's no surprise that the early church incorporated this practice into their worship. Now, what is it about holy hands? This simply meant that the men who did the praying were to be men in good standing. 
They were to be men whose hands were holy, meaning their life was holy in terms of the inward reality of their faith, and that they're seeking to honor God in their life and be holy. Some take this passage that women are forbidden to take part in public prayers. But we know that that's not the case. Because Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, about women praying in the church. He also speaks about these same women prophesying, which would be basically teaching, which is also a very public act. So what is the proper posture for prayer? I'll give you one suggestion. Don't do like they do in TV and in the movies. You ever notice how people pray in the movies, TV? They pray with their eyes open, looking at other people while they're praying. It's just kind of strange. Now, if you want to do that in silence, that's fine. I do that all the time. You can even look at a person and pray with your eyes open. But it's not a public prayer. It's a private prayer. And it's called praying in the Spirit in Scripture. But in Scripture, people sometimes stood to pray with outstretched hands. At other times, some people simply bowed their head. That's Genesis 24. Kneeling is also mentioned in Scripture as a suitable posture for prayer. And some, according to Genesis 17, we talk about Abraham, fell to the ground. Like Moses, who also fell face down in the presence of God in Numbers 16, as did Joshua. But here's something that you may not know. There's only one recorded instance in the entire Bible of anyone praying while sitting. Only one. And that was David in 2 Samuel 7. And that's the way a lot of us pray while we're sitting. As a general rule, Roman Catholics and Episcopalians kneel, Presbyterians bow or lower their head, close their eyes, and Charismatics lift their hands. But look, the posture of the body is not the most important thing, but instead the posture of your heart. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 15 where he said these people, their mouths say one thing, but their hearts are far from me. Far from me. So where's your heart today? You're in worship, you're in church, you're in the presence of God. Is your heart far from God? Then come to Him. He's waiting for you. He's pursuing you. He wants you to follow Him and be His his child. Now what's this about Paul talking about praying without anger or disputing? That's where he says, you know, lifting holy hands without anger or disputing. What's that about? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made it very clear that before you pray, before you worship... There should be reconciliation before worship. In other words, if there's someone that you have a a conflict with, someone that you're at odds with, then before you go to worship, you should settle that. You should go to that person, even go across the room and, and settle that. So it's a great reminder that in the community of faith, we're not to fight. Men are competitive. I'm very competitive. And when we don't get our way, we oftentimes get upset. Paul is saying, don't lead public worship unless your heart is right, unless you are seeking the unity and the peace of the church. And Paul told the Romans this. He said, if it's possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. That's Romans 12, verse 18. And that's not always possible. But we are admonished by the grace of God to try All right, so I'm sorry. That's all for the men today. Let's talk now to the ladies. And it sure is quiet in here. Let's look at the second lesson, which is women and their adornment. Women and their adornment. Look with me at verse 9. 
I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. I mean, wow. Paul would have had a fit if he lived in our day, wouldn't he? I mean, how out of touch can you be, right? Wrong. God is never out of touch. God is never out of touch. His word is true, which would say to each of us, maybe we ought to listen today. Maybe we should listen to what he has to say to us. So many people have approached the issue of what Paul has to say about sensitive issues like this by saying, well, obviously that was for that culture. Okay, which, which is more likely? Which is more likely that the Bible is out of date or that our culture is out of line? Well, I know this may sound harsh, but oftentimes the scripture that most shocks us or most surprises us or most offends us is oftentimes the scripture that we most need to hear. So I hope that, ladies, you'll hear me out. I send out a verse every day. Our church does. It's uh, a verse of the day that I can send to you on your phone and you may get it. And if you do, that's great. A number of you do have that. And if you don't have that, you can let me know and I can make sure that you get it. Today's verse was Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, the word of God is living and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, it penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I didn't have that much room in my verse, so I had to omit that part. But the last part I did not omit. It judges, the Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And so whenever I read Scripture, it it judges me. And I hope you'll approach Scripture today with that point of view. And it's at this point that you need to know a little bit about Greek culture. Because Paul was writing 2,000 years ago, there were elaborately braided hair as the styles of the day. It was a sign of extravagant luxury. Just like when I was in Israel in the fall, my wife and I saw these men with these very long coats and these tremendously large hats. And I was told that's all about pride. It's all about showing how much money you have because those hats are very, very expensive. And so in the Greek culture, there was also women that elaborately fixed their hair. I mean, the combination of elaborate hairstyle And expensive jewelry, according to Greek culture, was a sign of vanity. Many women spent hours placing gold and precious stones into their complicated hairdos. So that's what was going on then. So does this mean that women should never have their hair cut or styled? Of course not. What Paul wanted the women to do was to be conservative and not to go to extremes like the Roman women did. I mentioned about John Calvin being one of my sources. Listen to what he said. This is 500 years ago, and it really is very, very up to date. Paul's wish is that their dressing should be regulated by modesty and moderation. For luxury and extravagance come from a desire to make a display which can spring only from vanity. So Paul warned the men about argumentation. He said, I don't want the men to be fighting and being angry with one another. And he warns the women about ostentation. And I don't think it's a shocking assertion for me to say that women in general can tend to overdo it sometimes in terms of the attention that they give to outward appearance. For example, how many women do you see on TV that you would call ordinary looking? Not many. 
Because they work very hard to, to get ready before they go on camera. On the contrary, what you typically see are women so made up that if you met them on the street, you wouldn't recognize them. Paul's point is that women should not be like that in the sense that you prepare more for worship by working on your outward appearance than you do your inward appearance. And you certainly should not dress in such a manner that you put on a display for men or serve as a distraction to men. Do I really need to explain that? So what should you focus on, ladies? Being beautiful, Paul said, by what you do. Being beautiful by what you do. Not by what you wear. And that's what verse 10 actually says in our text. And one of my sources puts it this way. The way to become more attractive is through godliness, not gaudiness. So men in their prayers, women in their adornment, and third lesson is women in their submission. Women in their submission. It's at this point that many say that Paul's words are outdated. So ladies, hang with me, please. Some say that Paul did not like women... And so forth. And I say to you that that is a complete mischaracterization of the Apostle Paul. There is zero evidence, zero evidence to suggest that the Apostle Paul was ever against women. Paul led a lady named Lydia to Christ in Acts chapter 16. She was a very well-to-do lady in Acts 16. It was in the region of Philippi. And after that, Paul and his friends stayed the night in her home. Paul also stayed in the home of Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18. And a number of prominent women actually joined Paul and Silas at Thessalonica in spite of the opposition of the Jews. In Paul's letter to the Romans, this is really important, in the final chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, he greeted in his final greetings where he said, by the way, say hello to this person, that person. He greeted eight women. Eight women, and he even entrusted Phoebe, a woman described as a deaconess in her local church, with the task of carrying that letter, the letter to the Romans, to the Roman church. So as a result, I'm convinced that the roles of men and women are dictated not by culture, but by the transcultural principle Paul appeals to in Scripture. And why do I say that? Because in our text, Paul gives not one, but two illustrations from the book of Genesis to show why women should not exercise authority over men, especially in services of public worship. Verse 12 is really one that a lot of women have read before and they don't like because of what it says. I'll read it to you again. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. What Paul is getting at here is the headship principle that is taught throughout Scripture. And what is his reasoning? Well, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What Paul is hinting at is the ancient and biblical law of primogeniture. Primogeniture is where the firstborn son held a place of spiritual responsibility within the family. And so the eldest son inherited the responsibility of leadership in the home and leadership in worship. He became head of the household. In the same way, Adam was God's first formed son. Some commentators like to think this statement was made by Paul to suggest Adam's superiority to Eve. 
But nothing is said here about superiority of men, either in this verse or anywhere else in all of Scripture. So get that out of your head because that's just not true. You may be surprised to learn that when the Apostle Paul calls for a woman to live in submission to her husband, and that's in Ephesians chapter 5, his argument does not come from the status of women in the first century world. He does not try to perpetuate a a concept of the inferiority of women found in the distorted cultures of ancient Greece and Rome. In fact, there's no hint whatsoever of female inferiority. Quite the contrary, his argument, just like in our text is rooted in creation. In creation, as he deals with the role of women, as it was established in creation, maintained in the Old Testament, and reaffirmed in the New Testament. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul writes, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So, man, it says, did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The late author and missionary Elizabeth Elliot, and if you don't know that name, she she was married to Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was martyred. Jim Elliot was trying to reach the Alka Indians with the gospel. And he was murdered. He was killed. And so Elizabeth Elliot, let me tell you what kind of lady she was. She has already a child. And she's lost her husband. They were married about three years. They both went to Wheaton College. And loved each other and loved the Lord. And loved him so much they wanted to take the gospel to a group of people that were just not easy to reach. Because you couldn't communicate with them. And these Alka Indians thought that Jim Elliot and his four friends were coming to eat them. And so they speared them to death. Elizabeth Elliot buried her husband. And a couple of years later, she went back to reach the Alka Indians for Christ. And she led to Christ, the man who speared her husband to death, who became a pastor This all happened in 1956 and following. And Elizabeth Elliot was a tremendous author and missionary and evangelist. And I heard her speak and got to meet her in person. I was very, very impressed at the strength of this lady. And she has read and taught on this passage and this subject. And she has four points that she says come from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And I have those in your bulletin so you can fill in the blanks, okay? Point number one, she says the woman was made for the man. The woman was made for the man. Number two, the woman was made literally from the man. Number three, the woman was brought to the man. And number four, the woman was named by the man. Number one, the woman was made for the man. The woman was made literally from the man. The woman was brought to the man. The woman was made named by the man. However, none of these things... None of these things are proof that the woman is somehow inferior to the man. So that's simply not true. So look at our text again at verse 14, back in 1 Timothy 2, 14. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, and became a sinner. Yet, who is held responsible for that first sin? It wasn't Eve. It was Adam. Adam. Because he was the 
primogeniture. He was the head of the human race. He was the head of his home. And he was standing by passively while Eve ate the fruit. And then he took the fruit from her and he ate some himself. So because Adam had been designated as the head of the household, God held him responsible. And I don't know a man in this place today who loved to be the responsible one. Wouldn't we love men to just hand that over to the ladies and let them be the responsible ones? I I know I would. So why would God designate Adam and husbands to be the heads of their household? And then when it comes to things in the church, say, oh, I don't care. Do it any way you want. You see, he wouldn't because he didn't. It has nothing to do with capability. Nothing to do with capability. I'm sure there are many women, many women more capable than the men who are leaders in this church. But it's not about capability, but about God's order in that he and his wisdom has decided this is the way it is to be. You know, and what I've seen through the years, and, and, and again, I'm not a rookie here, when, when women assume leadership in the church, the men are happy to let them do so and, and are happy to bow out. There's a lot of other things that men can find to do and find interest in. But that's not what God has said. He wants the men to step up and lead. So does that mean there's no place for women in the church? Are you kidding? Of course there is. This congregation would implode without the ministry of women in this church. And I mean that. This congregation would not survive without our women in ministry. I visited one of the great ladies of our church the other day, Sis Clark, who led our women's ministry years ago. And she said, Rhett, I am so proud of our women. She said, they are so good to me. She said, look at these orchids, two weeks old, and they still look beautiful. Because people, our women, take these flowers and visit people during the week following the worship service and minister to our shut-ins. And again, it's really hard for for sis to get to church these days. She can't drive. She's very healthy right now. She's 90 years old. And she says, Rhett, the women in ministry is such a tremendous ministry. And I echo a large and hearty amen to that. Because the women in ministry are the unofficial deacons of our church who carry on so many ministries behind the scenes that you would not believe how much they do to build up this church in the name of Christ. All right, at the close here, Paul comes to another point about the glorious role of women, and I'll close with that. He says in verse 15, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It means here, and there are exceptions... Because not all women can bear children. It means that women will receive spiritual blessings through the joy of bringing children into this world and in bringing them up in the ways of God. This is conditional. He says it's conditional if they continue in faith, love, and and holiness with propriety. Paul was saying that the believing women in Ephesus will receive untold blessings by committing themselves to pray for and lead their children and other women and their children in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. He was also saying that we are saved by Jesus Christ who was born from the seed of a woman. So, born of a woman. And that brings us to the gospel. 
which is the hope of the world. The gospel is that we have no hope in ourselves because of our sinful nature, because of our sin. Our hope is only in one person, that's Jesus the Christ, who took our place on that cross, took your place on that cross, to die a death that you could not pay. To pay your debt of sin that you could never pay. Jesus did that. And Jesus came from a woman. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. And it's in your bulletin under the New Living Translation. So let's read it out loud together. Christ is the head of His body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. Thank You, Father, that You figured this out long before us. And so, instead of following culture, help us, Lord, to listen to you and trust you. Not that you're trying to deprive any of us of anything. You're trying to look out for us. And we thank you for doing that. We pray that you would help us to be students of your word, to learn your word, and to, Lord, receive your word with faith. To trust you, to obey your word, and to live lives that honor and glorify you. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the love that drove you to come to this world. God, thank you for that love that sent your only Son, Jesus, into the world, that we might live through him. And so thank you for that love that will never let us go. I pray that you'd pursue those in this church, Father, that are running away from you. I pray that you will touch their hearts, even today, and draw them into your presence through the love of Christ. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.